Good morning, y'all. I'm not crying. Y'all are crying. <laughs> I picked those songs, and uh, I was like, man, I just want to worship before I come up to speak to God's people. And I was just a mess back there. <laughs> now, why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for us? Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to us. How much mercy you've had on sinners. Lord God, that you put your own son to grief for us. And Lord God, it's our pleasure to sing you praise for that. It's what's right. And we want to give you the glory that's due your name. And Lord, today, as we hear your word, God, that you would speak to us. How gracious and how merciful a God are you. That you've opened up your mouth and you've let sinners in to hear what you have to say. If the servants of Solomon were blessed because they could hear his words, God, how, much, how blessed are we? That we hear the words of the living God. So God, be with us in this time. Help us to continue our worship. Lord, we love you and we thank you for for every blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. That was not how I anticipated getting started. Uh, I expected my eyes to be a little more dry. But I'm thankful to get to speak to you all this morning. And we're going to continue on in 1 Timothy we happen to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5. And you can go ahead and go there and then hold your place because I want to start off with a warning. And it seems like an odd way to get started, but I want to wake us up this morning. I want us to be woken up to the reality that, that's around us. It's, it's not only the context that the people in Ephesus and Timothy find themselves, but it's the context that we are in right now, and I think uh, this is a fitting warning for us, and I want to do it through reading a passage out of Revelation. So hold your place in 1 Timothy 4, and go to Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a a kind of an analogy. We have uh, this this picture of a woman who has, uh, is about to give birth to a child. We know that This woman is symbolizing Israel and that this child is the one who uh, is waiting to be devoured by the serpent. And this this is to symbolize Christ and this great war that's been going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And she gives birth to this child. In verse 5 it says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So this is the Christ. The Christ has come and the devil couldn't beat him. Chapter 12, verse 7. We're going to read 7 through 12. It says, Now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil 
and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been cast down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And we stop there. And we just go, yes, he's, he's been defeated. The power of his Christ has come. And verse 12 continues, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And you skip down to verse 17, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. You say, that's a strange way to start the sermon with this analogy. But I want to I open our eyes to something. Is that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. It says the devil was cast down to the earth, and he says he was angry. He had great wrath because he knew that he had a short time. Do you, are you aware this morning that, that you have an enemy? It says he has great wrath, and he is at war with the people of God. I was, I, was, I was telling this, I was trying to explain this to my three-year-old, and I was, it was bedtime, and he's very imaginative, and I was like, man, I've got to be really careful how I present this to him, because I don't want him to like, stay awake at night. And, uh, but as I thought about that, I said, why, is that keep, why would that keep my son awake at night? And it would keep him awake at night because he believes me. It's because he believes me. Like, when I tell him, hey, we have an enemy, and he's trying with all of his might, to, to war with the people of God. It says the devil, in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, a prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. And my son believes me. I'm afraid that we, we get lulled to sleep. Because I can't see it or taste it or touch it that it, that it must not be happening. But there is, there is a spiritual reality that's happening all around us. And, it, and, and it, there's a war between the devil and the people of God. Now, praise God that we read... He's been defeated. In every real way, he's been defeated. But he's still making war. He has a short time, and he's willing to make the most of it. It says that Paul, Paul tells a group in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says, we're not ignorant of his schemes, though. And so what I want us to do, I want, to, I want us to wake up to not be ignorant of his schemes. And one of his schemes is... In, we see it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It says, speaking of those who are unbelievers, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We have an enemy, and he has schemes, and we're charged not to be ignorant of those schemes. The devil would love to make the church unfruitful, and he would love to blind the eyes of unbelievers. And this is our context. This is where we live every day in the middle of this war. And this is where we find ourselves in 1 Timothy. So let's flip back over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we start off this passage. Just imagine where we've been. We've just come off of, uh, you know, we skipped a week there, but Ryan taught on this great mystery of godliness. Verse 16, 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We're the pillar and ground of the truth, church. We're, we're, we're truth defenders and truth proclaimers, right? We're just, we come off of chapter 3 with just feeling triumphant. We've just been, we just praise God for who He is and what He's done. And then we get here and it says, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later, later times some will depart from the faith. And it's a sobering promise. It's a sobering promise that we're given. And it says that the Spirit expressly says, we don't know what that means, we don't know how, how He knows this, we don't know if it's from the Old Testament, even though there was plenty of Old Testament passages to point to this fact, or if in the New Testament He's remembering Jesus who said that wolves, you'll know wolves because they, they, they walk around in sheep's clothing, or you'll know, you'll know a tree by its fruit. So, so this isn't something that is totally novel, but he, he's reminding the people in Ephesus and Timothy, he says, hey, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. And I want us to actually flip over to Acts chapter 20, because it's actually not the first time he's told them this. In Acts chapter 20, we're going to start... In verse 28. But he's gathered together the Ephesian elders and he's about to leave them, so he gives them this charge. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 31, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is not the first time he's mentioned this to them. He's, told, he's already told them, he's already gathered the elders together and said, Hey, look, after I leave, wolves are going to come in and try to draw men away after themselves. They're going to they're even rise up from among yourselves. And he's reminding them here again. And, and I think what makes this such a sobering promise is that we are made aware of the reality of false conversion. Because what I want to say is, he says some will depart from the faith. Meaning they will claim the faith now, and then they will leave it. Which is a terrifying, a terrifying reminder, a terrifying thing to be told. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, He says, on the last day, He says, on, on that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. P 
People who claiming, say, Jesus, you're Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Active. And then will I declare to them, this is what Jesus is going to declare to them on that day. He say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I've been so burdened as I was preparing for this, as I thought about this, as I think about my brothers and sisters in this church, that, he, that Paul is reminding them that the Spirit expressly says that some will depart from the faith. That, I, that there are people who will come to Jesus on the last day calling Him Lord, having done many things in His name even, and He'll say, but I don't know you. I don't even know you. First John chapter 2, verse 19, John gives a, a similar... A, 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 why do I call it false conversion? But, and, and this is one of the reasons why. It says, uh, John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So there will be people within the church, even teachers in the church, who will depart from the, the faith because they were never truly converted. John says they went out from us because they were never of us. There's a mark of true conversion which is called perseverance. And, 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 and I want to give you something because I said there's the, there's the reality of false conversion that it's actually possible for you to think that you know the Lord and you don't. And He doesn't know you. But it's also because of the nature of true conversion that I can say this is false conversion. Because let's think about the nature of true conversion for just a minute. Philippians 1 verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. My dad is here. And if I heard anything growing up, my dad said, Jacob, don't have to do anything. Right? Don't have to do anything. I don't know how many times I heard that. Do you think God half does anything? He says, I, am, I, I know, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Has Jesus began a good work in you? If he has, guess what? He will bring it to completion. God doesn't have to do anything. Hebrews 12, verse 2. We've just been in verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, man, throw off sins. Lay aside every weight. Run the race with endurance. Very active faith that we have. Looking unto Jesus, verse 2. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame... And is seated, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So as you run the race with endurance for a Christian, where is a Christian's eyes locked always? On a seated Christ. On a seated Christ. A Christ who did all the work and sat down. On a seated Christ who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So I can call it false conversion because you know what the nature of a, of, of a true convert is? Is that God finishes the work He started in you.
I think I, I don't know. I can't remember if I left these on your sheet or not. But in Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, we get this great call to God. Uh, the name of God is proclaimed. And it says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. And Ephesians 2.10 says, And you're His workmanship. Isn't that good news? At, oh, this God, His work is perfect. And you're His work. Man, if you're in Christ, if you've been saved by His grace, you will persevere to the end because He's... Because you're, you're not the founder, nor are you the perfecter of your faith, but God is. I'm going to read this quote from Paul Washer. He says, He who began a good work in us will perfect it by his own doing. This is not a denial of human responsibility and salvation or of the Christian's great struggle against sin. This does not negate that there will be great losses as well as victories in our striving for conformity to Christ. However... It does assure us that God has set out to make for Himself a people, and by His own power He will see it done. All whom He calls will come to Him, and of those who come to Him, not one will be lost. Though Through the blood of Christ they are justified, and through the power of the Holy Spirit they are regenerated, sanctified, and led. Although each may grow at a different pace and to a different degree, and some may seem to fly to maturity, while others barely crawl, they will all, nevertheless, progress toward the upward call of God in Christ and demonstrate in word and deed that they are His people and He has become their God. Amen. So we have a sobering promise. And, and I want, before we leave this, I want to say there are still two encouragements to be had out of this, even this sobering promise that we've been given. The first encouragement is that it's only going to be some. And that encourages me. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some, some will depart from the faith. Not all. Not many. Some, some, yes. But not, not all, not many. And that's a great encouragement to us as we, as we look in and we say, oh God, have mercy on us. We know it's, it's not all, it's not many. It's some. Some will depart from the faith. And the, the other encouragement is, I know in my own life personally, and even in our church, um, I've seen people fall away from the faith. I've seen people depart from the faith. And I've had this conversation with myself where I've said, God, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Like, what did I say? Could I have, could I have done this differently? Should I have maybe waited to say this? And this is an encouragement that the Spirit expressly says that even having done everything right, some will depart from the faith. And so not to be discouraged. And it says the Spirit that says that some will depart from the faith by something. What, what's the root issue here? What's the root issue for those that, have, that are departing the faith? What does this text say is the root issue of their departure? And what it is, is it's a misplaced devotion. It's a misplaced devotion. Look at what it says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It starts on the inside. There's, there's no one that departs from the faith that just wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm out. I just, just don't want to do it anymore. It starts somewhere on the inside. It, it's, it's, there's a root problem, which is a misplaced devotion. And you see that already. He's already mentioned it at the beginning of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 Verses 3 and 4. He says, uh, he, this, is his, this is what he's urging Timothy, as I urged you. 
when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So we've already seen that it's a misplaced devotion. Again, these teachers devoted to teaching myths and speculations. These people devoted to those teachings, devoted to teachings of demons and deceitful spirits. And this is how it always is, that it always starts on the inside. We don't have to flip there, but in James 1, 14 and 15 it says, but this is speaking of sin, just sin in general, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Where did it start? There's this great sin, but where did it start? It started with a desire. It started on the inside. It started with a misplaced affection. Just imagine, we've come out of that great praise of God. 1 Timothy 3, 16. This great mystery of godliness. And they've left the devotion to Jesus Christ and Him crucified to find something else. What a shame. What a shame that that would not be us. And what I want to point out is this is the root of leaving the faith. The root of leaving the faith was being devoted to something else. Jesus is great, but I'm going to devote myself to something else. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. In the last days, God spoke to us by His Son. And He uses the same word as devotion that He uses here in chapter 2, verse 1 of Hebrews. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. What are we to be devoted to? What we've heard from the Son. What are we to be devoted to? Jesus Christ and Him crucified, this glorious gospel. And yet there there are those who will depart from the faith, and it all started with a misplaced devotion. And it's not just a misplaced devotion, you know, you can tend to think, um, maybe we can think small thoughts about that. But look at what it says in the end of chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So what's the source? What's the source of this thing that they're devoting themselves to? It's deceitful spirits and demons. This is actually what I started with when we talked about this great warfare that's going on all around us. Do you know that they're intimately concerned with drawing people away from the faith? We've already seen that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 He's blinding the minds of those unbelievers so that they don't see the glory of Christ. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. There are deceitful spirits that would seek to draw men away from the faith, cause them to, de- de- to leave the faith, and they'll put up teachings that sound appealing, teachings that they'll put before you. And, and, and just, so they can, just so they can grab the attention, just so they can grab the devotion, and, 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 de- and men and women will depart from the faith. 
And we can, we, can, we can think, well, I don't see that happening around me. I've never seen a demon come talk to me, you know. That doesn't happen around here. Not in Baptist land. We don't have that. Uh, what I'm saying is, we can tend to be lulled to sleep because you can't see it. But what does it say that the, the vehicle of this teaching is? What's the vehicle? Look at verse 2. Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. Through, how's it coming? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What's the vehicle? So what's the source? Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons. But what's the vehicle? Men and women. People. How's it coming to you? You know how it comes to you? Through someone else opening their mouth and speaking to you. We can be so, we can be so uh, blind to the spiritual warfare because it doesn't look super spiritual, but it comes with a, with a slick-talking pastor. It comes with somebody coming in with a, new, with a new thing to sell you. And it calls them insincere liars. The word that's used for insincerity, and I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's hypocrite. It's basically hypocrite in the Greek. Hypocrisis, I think. It says hypocrites. And liars is this word, pseudo-logos. Logos being word, they're just they're pseudo-speakers. They're hypocritical liars. They're deceiving and they're deceived, they're deceiving and being deceived. Second Corinthians eleven, thirteen through fifteen. Just imagine this. It says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Disguised as apostles of Christ, right? Sounds like Jesus saying, uh, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like the sheep, but they're actually wolves. And no wonder, it says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. These are, these are hypocritical liars who have disguised themselves as angels of light. Just like Satan. Just like Satan can, can disguise himself as an angel of light. It doesn't seem so bad, right? It's just a small thing. But he says their end will correspond to their deeds. We've even seen this in the book of 1 Timothy already. He says, Hymenaeus, he gives two, two examples. In 1 Timothy 1.20 it says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. But this has already happened. People rising up within the church to speak false things about God, to draw away men and women to another devotion. And it says their consciences are seared. Y'all can take this example or leave it. I can't, I can't swear by this one. But I will say, uh, when, I, when, I, when I was trying to explain Think about how to explain again to a three-year-old how, how the conscience works. Um, I thought about a, a check engine light, okay? Just go with me here. It's not a perfect example, but it's one that I got. It's like a check engine light. When I'm driving and that check engine light pops on, something might be wrong. It might just be telling me to get my oil changed. So something might not necessarily be wrong. But that check engine light co- comes on and says, hey, you need to check that out. You probably need to check your engine. Something might be going on in here. Right? And God's given each person a sort of moral check engine light. 
It's not infallible. But when things pop up, you should have something going off that goes, hey, you might want to check that out. You might want to get that. You might, maybe it's nothing, but you should probably pump the brakes here. Maybe you, should, maybe you should check it out. Not a perfect example, but it says these men, they don't have that. They're hypocritical liars, and you know what? They don't lose an ounce of sleep over it. And I've already quoted this verse, but in another place it says they're deceived. They're, they're deceivers, and they're being deceived. They don't even know. Their conscience is seared. There's nothing happening. That moral check engine light doesn't come on for them. So I want us to wake up to what is the root issue, where is it originating, what's the vehicle, and I think most of all, I want us to see that what, what is the actual teaching? What is this? Just imagine for, with me, before we read it, for just a second, that, that all of hell has gathered together. Ephesians 6 calls it the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's hosts of wickedness, and they're scheming. The devil and his minions are scheming. They're thinking, how can we drag people away from Christ? What can I do to blind the eyes of the unbeliever? How can we make the church unfruitful? What's this deceitful doctrine that's got people departing from the faith? They're sticking in the the mouths of uh, deceitful liars, insincere liars. Look at verse 3. Who forbid marriage? And require abstinence from foods. Does that shock anyone else? Were you like, oh, I can't wait to hear the, the, the nitty gritty of what the devil's got going on. What's he cooked up in his cauldron today? You know what it is? Hey, you, you can't be married. Or you don't eat, don't eat those certain types of foods. Does that not sound really benign? Are you tempted to read that and say, well, that's not that bad. I mean, that's not that, that's not that bad. And I, and I think at, first, at the first glance, we all go, yeah, you know, whatever. That doesn't seem too bad. I, whatever. And I think that's part of the problem, right? I think that's part of the problem because what I want you to know is this is working. He says some will depart from the faith because they've devoted themselves to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons through insincere liars, then they're telling them, all they're telling them is you can't be married and you shouldn't eat these types of foods. It's working. People are leaving the faith over this stuff. And so what I hope at the end of this that we see how truly heinous this is. I want us to hate this. And I've called it the plausible heresy. It's a plausible heresy. I've called it a plausible heresy because of a verse in Colossians 2. Colossians 2 verse 4 Paul warns the Colossians, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The word plausible just means believable. It's a believable argument. He says, I'm saying these things so that you wouldn't fall into plausible arguments. And, and, and why, what makes this a plausible heresy? Why do I call it a plausible heresy? Well, just think about this. Somebody comes in. They look, like a, they look like a minister of righteousness and they walk up with their Bible and they open the Bible and they say, hey, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And so if you want to reach another level of holiness, if you want to reach a higher level of, Christian, of, a, of the Christian experience, 
If you want to be really, truly righteous, you can't be married. Isn't that believable? Isn't that kind of plausible? Leviticus 11, they open their Bibles again and they say, oh, and by the way, in Leviticus 11, this is where God gives all of His food laws. God, God says you, shouldn't, you can only eat these certain types of foods. And we're just, you know, all, all I'm saying is that if, if you really want to walk into true righteousness, real holiness, man, then you'll abstain from all those foods. Isn't that a plausible argument? Are you ready for a plausible, a plausible heresy? You know, the devil didn't cook up a scheme and say, I've got it. Hey, let's get a preacher to stand up on Sunday at GCC and say, hey, everybody, we've decided to worship Satan today. Like, that's not going to work. No one's leaving the faith with that kind of an argument. Right? It's a plausible argument that gets you. Are you ready for the, the heresy that comes with a chapter and a verse? Just think, think, this is what he's always done. Right? When he went to Adam and Eve, he gave them a half-truth. He said, did God really say you can't eat from anything in the garden? He took God's word and he twisted it. That's not what God said. What did he do to Jesus? He came with chapter and verse to deceive Jesus. This is how he's always worked. As he comes, the devil comes with these men who, are, who appear to be ministers of righteousness. They've got a Bible open, but they're telling you there's a way. There's a better way. Are you ready for the plausible heresy? We already know kind of what these things are because it's not just, it's not just this, right? It's not just these food restrictions and these marriage restrictions because he says at the beginning of 1 Timothy, myths, endless genealogies, they promote speculations. He says they desire to be teachers of the law. So this is a, this is a, a plethora of things that they're teaching, but we get the two things here. Marriage and abstinence from foods. And what makes this so heinous? What makes this a heresy? And I think part of the key is that it says forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from foods, right? They're saying, you cannot be married. You cannot be married if you truly, want to, if you, if you truly follow Christ. You can't possibly be married. If you, just, if you want to reach another level of holiness, you just can't be married. Or if you just really, if you want to be, I mean, if you want to be really, truly holy, you can't eat these foods. And, and we, see, we see this in our culture, right? We see very obvious examples of this within Islam, for instance, within uh, Catholicism, within Mormonism, within uh, the Jehovah's Witness tradition. There's all these dietary restrictions. Or there's, all, there's this higher level of holiness that you attain to. When you remain celibate. And what I want to tell you is that I think I need to make it more personal to us. Because I personally, I don't think many people are struggling with that this morning. But what I think happens more often for us is that we say, you know what? You couldn't possibly really truly be following the Lord and have flashy programs at your church. You couldn't possibly. If you really want to be holy, you'll have the guy that leads your music play a banjo. You know? <laughs> For those of y'all who don't know, ask me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but truly, have you elevated spiritual preference and made it the benchmark for every other Christian to meet? 
Because what I want to warn you about is that this causes men and women to leave the faith. It's a plausible heresy. It's a plausible heresy. Or, or, or better yet, what about how you deal with your children? You know, it becomes a thing of all the, all the things you don't do. You know, oh, I, I don't send my child to public school. Or we only read this type of Bible. Or you, you begin to make these things that are spiritual preferences, things that God has given us an incredible amount of freedom on. And we begin to make them, oh, if you really wanted to reach another level of righteousness, you'd do it like I do it. And each person has to search their own heart to know what that is. But I know I'm guilty. I know I've done that. That I've taken a thing that God has shown me to do, and it is good and right for me. And yet I have begun to make it into an idol, and I've placed it above, above other things. And I've said, if you really want to attain real righteousness, when you finally arrive, you'll think like this. And what makes that so wrong? What makes that so wrong? Here's what makes it so wrong. God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world. God took on flesh and entered into the human experience and lived a completely perfect life. And He was crucified for your sins. God Himself bore the wrath that you deserved. God in the flesh bore your wrath. And He was crucified and He was buried. And He rose again. And He sits at the right hand of God, ruling. You know what makes that so heinous, so abominable to God? Because God did something for your sins. And it wasn't homeschooling. He sent His only Son to die for your sins. And you would place something ahead of that? Imagine standing before God in the last day. Can you imagine this? And he, You're standing before God in judgment. And you say, oh God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that He died for my sins. Thank you that He rose from the dead and He's now King over all. But did you know? you know that I gave up uh, watching The Office? Really? Like, how, how offensive is that to God? How offensive is that that you would place any of your righteousness in place of the cross? I, I, I wasn't sure I was going to share this, but I, I had a conversation this week with someone who said, he, he was saying, like, man, I really feel like I would grow closer with God if I would get rid of some of these uh, violent books. Like, there's books that I read, and there's just too much violence in them. I'm going to put them away. And, um, you know, there's some television shows I've been watching. I just feel like I would grow closer with God if I would just get some of these things out of my life. And I was like, brother, I, I agree with you. I think that would work. I, think, I, think, I really think that would help you walk more closely with God. But it's not your righteousness. It's not your righteousness. Jesus is your righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That we can be so busy trying to... We, we want to be sanctified, Right? How easy is it to make that the spiritual benchmark that you place on others? 
to, att- to attain to a, a real level of righteousness. And I want, us to, I want to warn us that these types of attitudes, these types of things, they lead people away from Christ. People depart from the faith. And it's Jesus only. It's just Jesus. You know, I love this song. This is, what this is all we can sing when we, when we hit heaven. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Just stop there. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what we're going to be singing at the gates. And I want us to come off of this. I want us to feel properly warned about, about all these things, but I want us to pull us back into the text. And it says that this, this doctrine, it says, who forbid marriage, they require abstinence from foods. But y'all, God has a good creation. God has a good creation. Listen to this. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Did you know that God created marriage and food to be received with thanksgiving? Because it's not, it's not just that they were devoted to something. They were devoted to something that was just flat out wrong. They're just wrong here. God created marriage to be received with thanksgiving. God created foods to be received with thanksgiving. They're saying you can't do these things to be really holy. And he's like, au contraire. God made these things to be received. They're created to be received. Look, listen to this. Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Right? Before the fall, when God looked out over all his creation, he didn't see a single thing and say, uh-uh. He looked and he said, oh man, it was all good. This is all good. It's very good. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God sanctified that. God made that holy by His Word. Acts chapter 10, that's the Old Testament. Or in the New Testament, Acts 10, 9-15, There came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean... Do not call common. You gotta think, why did these why were there these food restrictions in the first place? They were they were there in the first place because of sin. God was making a distinction between his people and the nations. And you know what happened in Christ? He's no longer making that distinction. He's separating, he's separating now on faith in Christ and not faith in Christ. He, he's saying, hey, that thing that was to separate you from the nations, it's done. I'm calling all the nations. He's declaring all foods clean because He's declared all men clean. And so God has made a good creation. And here's what I want to ask you. Are you thankful? It says it's to be received with thanksgiving. And specifically, this leads to my next point. It was created for Christians. Alright, you say, well, that's weird. Marriage and food created for Christians. That's what I'm saying because that's what this says, right? It says, God created to be received with thanksgiving 
by those who believe and know the truth. Did you know that marriage was specifically created with Christians in mind? And that food was created with Christians in mind? You say, well, why is that? Who else in all of the world, when they receive God's good gifts, gives thanks to the true God? Who else in all of the world, when they, when they sit down to a meal, and this is for me, but you have that, that good steak, and you say, oh, thank you, God. Who else does that? Nobody else in all the world gives the true God the glory that's due His name. Who, who, who here who is married, when you say thank you, you don't say, you don't, if you're in Christ, you know where that thanksgiving goes? When you thank God for your marriage? You say, oh, thank you, thank you, God. Through Jesus Christ, thank you, God. We're the one people who give God the glory that's due His name. So when God created this, He had us in mind because we're the only people who are going to do it. God is so good. His common grace falls on all. But this stuff is made especially for us who give God the glory that's due His name. Did you know that God has given each person, on average, about 10,000 taste buds? So you say, well, why did God give us 10,000 taste buds? Because He wanted you to taste. He wanted you to taste. God made something. He could have made us, He could have made food just blobs that we ate. But He didn't do that, did He? Isn't God so good in His creation that He, he made food and He gave you taste buds to taste it? Why did He give you taste buds? Because He wanted you to be thankful. He wanted you to taste it and be thankful. So again, it, it begs the question, are you thankful? Are you thankful? Did you know that marriage and food was created for Christians to be thankful? Are you thankful? It says everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Are you receiving these things with thanksgiving? Husbands, are you thankful for your wives? Wives, are you thankful for your husbands? Are you thankful for your children? Are you thankful for the provisions that God's put in front of you? It's to be received with thanksgiving. Not only is it not to be forbidden or rejected, it's to be received with thanksgiving. And being thankful is good and right. But giving thanks is better. Being thankful is good, but giving thanks is better. And we want to express that thanksgiving, right? Look at the end. Look at verse 5. It says, For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We've already seen that God has made holy these things by His Word. And now also, we in a sense, we set apart, we make holy, we sanctify these things to God. As Christians partake of specifically marriage, specifically food, when we partake of these things with thanksgiving, and we say, God, thank you so much. You know what happens? That that thing is set apart to God now. That by the Word of God and by prayer, these things are sanctified for the Christian. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. It says, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
Has God given you richly all things to enjoy? As we'll see in a couple of weeks. He has. Do you know that the Bible, in some shape, form, or fashion, if you just blue letter Bible, give thanks, because I did this, you get 62 hits. 62 times in the Bible, you're given some variation of either they didn't give thanks or they did give thanks. 62 times in the ESV. You think that's important? So I want us to be thankful. Not only do we, not only do we just reject these heresies outright, but man, we just come to God in complete thankfulness. Now I want to make a couple of applications for us. I'm going to start with to the church. I'm going to start here. <clears throat> don't be lulled to sleep. Don't, don't let what you see maybe in hyper-charismatic circles make you close your eyes to the spiritual warfare that's around you. We are in a war and the devil has great wrath. He is prowling around seeking someone to devour. He would love for you to close your eyes to the spiritual warfare around you so that he can wreak havoc in the church and blind the eyes of the non-believer. He wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Don't assume the gospel in our meetings. Don't assume that people know it. But guess what? Jesus Christ has defeated the devil. Jesus is the one who was promised who would crush the head of the serpent. Listen to this. I was thinking about this song. A mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devils filled would threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. Amen. Look to Him. Don't fall asleep, but look to Him. Fight the good fight. Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Be watchful. The second thing for the church. Christ is preeminent. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is preeminent. You don't have to make Him preeminent. He is preeminent. But in your heart, set apart Christ the Lord. Make Him that. Keep Him seated on the throne. Don't let these spiritual preferences, things that are good things, things that you should do, don't make them your idol. There's a quote from a guy named Benjamin Keach. He said, you can never give too much diligence to your duty. You can never give too much diligence to your duty. And you can never put too little trust in it. Work hard, but, you, but don't trust it. And the last thing for the church is to be thankful. Be thankful. Don't let, a, don't let another day go by where you refuse to be thankful for your marriage. Don't let, another, don't let another meal pass you by before you say grace. You know, that's why they said that. Saying grace, giving thanks. And not only that, tell God you're thankful. God created marriage, food, and all things to be enjoyed. Are you giving Him the glory that's due His name? 
As the only people who will give the true God the praise he deserves, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And to the false convert, if there's anyone here who maybe as I've been speaking has been pricked, because I've been praying that you have been pricked, if someone who thinks they're saved and has now come to the conclusion, maybe, maybe I need to rethink this. Have I truly been converted? Don't be deceived. Do you know God? Does God know you? Will you come to Him on the last day and will He recognize you? Are you devoted to Christ or something else? Test yourself. See if you're in the faith. And I just want to encourage you, you don't have to be a false convert. So many of us in here have the testimony of the false convert. I was the false convert. I thought I was saved a lot longer than I actually was. But God in His mercy opened my eyes. Did you know that you don't have to stay a false convert? You can repent and believe the gospel today. God is patient. God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't despise His patience. Don't despise His kindness. God has done so much to secure eternal salvation for all who believe, for all who trust in Him. He's never turned anyone away, and He never will. So if you come to Him, even now as a false convert, you know you'll be made a true convert? God will start that work that will never finish, or that will always finish. I've been praying that our church would wake up So we thank God for His Word. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, what a good and glorious God You are. Thank You for Your Word. God, I pray that if there is anyone here, Lord, who does not know You, God, that they would know You. They would put their trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. They would trust His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Lord Jesus, You are good, and You, you do good. We, we, we thank You, God. We thank You. We're filled with thankfulness, and we want to be a church full of thankfulness, God. You are worthy to be praised, Lord God, for all Your good gifts. We bless Your name in Jesus' name. Amen.